All right. Well, when you came in this morning, you received a sheet that looks like this. It's probably in the back of behind your notes, but in front of your homework. It says Bible reading themes. Um, Go ahead and pull that out. Now, a Bible reading theme is a tool, and it's designed to help us gain greater understanding from our time in the Word and to help us stay focused as we sit down to meet with God in His Word. In Wellspring, we're reading through several chapters a day in the Bible, and looking for a theme can really help us stay engaged and get more out of our reading. And it helps it to be a time of actually meeting with God, and not just one more task to check off our list. So if you look at your sheet, you can see there that we have seven themes for you to consider choosing to be your focus as you read through God's Word. Um, You can see uh, you could choose to focus on truths about God and his character or examples of faith. You could look for truths which will comfort and strengthen you in times of adversity or principles and examples that will help you grow in your prayer life. You could look for truths that will help you in your fight and your battle against sin or examples of good heart shepherding. Or then the last one is glory. And if you'll remember, Scott Maxwell suggested doing that in our very first lesson for Wellspring this year. Um, So if you decide that picking a theme would be helpful to you, then you need to decide if you would like to follow your discoveries by marking them in your Bible, um, or recording them in a journal, or even recording them on your phone, perhaps. There's a stack of spiral notebooks in the back. If you want to take one of those and use that as your theme journal, that's what it's there for. I would suggest that you write out your theme or maybe cut it out of this piece of paper and tape it on the front of your journal or um, turn it into a bookmark in your Bible. Um, And that way it will be there to remind you of what you've decided to look for as you read. And then it probably won't happen every day, but when you do discover a verse or a passage that speaks to your theme, you can mark it in your Bible or record it in your journal. Write down what you learn or copy the verse. You'll be excited every time you make a discovery, and then it's really encouraging to look back and review your discoveries as the year progresses. So this is just a tool to help us get more out of our Bible reading. There's not a right or wrong. There's not a deadline. You can start it whenever it works for you. You can put it away and pull it out later when you um, are finding that you need a little extra help to be focused. Um, But the idea is just to use it in a way that serves you, that helps you make your time in the Word a time of meeting with the Lord. So that is... That is what the Bible reading themes are about. If you didn't get a notebook, feel free to pick one up when we're done. Excuse me. All right, go ahead and pull out your notebook. Um, Turn to the back of your notebook. We do this every time we're together. We review our Wellspring purpose and disciplines, and we do this because we don't want to lose sight of the disciplines that we're seeking to cultivate as we come together around God's Word. So the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we have three disciplines. These should be familiar by now. The heart, the home, and ministry. And the purpose helps us to see how one discipline builds on another. The foundation is discipline one. The heart, prayerfully shepherding our heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And after the lessons that we've had on the heart, I know you've had a couple lessons now from Suzanne, 
This should make perfect sense because we've seen how needy our hearts are for what God has provided for us in his word. And so in Wellspring, our assignment, as we've already said, is uh, to use a daily, pa- da- excuse me, a daily reading plan as our tool to help us cultivate this discipline of daily meeting with God in his word. And that's where heart shepherding begins, but it doesn't end there. Our time alone with God prepares us to live gospel-transformed lives, beginning in our households, with our families, and that's discipline too. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Living out gospel-transformed lives means we continue to shepherd our hearts all day long. And that gospel-transformed living overflows into the relationships in our home and then into our church and beyond our church, wherever God gives us opportunity to interact with others. And that's what Discipline 3 is all about. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry in her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And that strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. And we're going to see all of these disciplines woven together today in our Titus 2 lesson, like threads in a tapestry. But before we turn to the lesson, I want to go back to Discipline 1, the heart, for just a moment. And again, just talk specifically about why we go to the Word of God and how we go to the Word of God. We've said it every week. Heart shepherding is not just opening our Bible and reading the words or even just collecting more information. Discipline 1 is about drawing near to God through his word and through prayer, expressing our love for him. It's worship. It's marveling over and over again at the wonders of who God is and what he has done. It's being reminded of the gospel, that Christ's death and resurrection in our place makes us his own. It's a time to talk to God. It's a time to talk to him about what you're reading, to thank him, to affirm your belief in what you are reading to plead with him for grace to draw near and to understand and to love him more and to be faithful to him. It's a time for joy. So look at the small uh, sheet of paper that you got when you came in. If you didn't get one, there are more on the back table. At the bottom, you can see Psalm 1611, and it says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Not just a little bit of joy. Fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That is what our time in the word is to be. It's a time of joy in the presence of God. Now you have a quote from John Piper also on this sheet of paper. He writes, we must remind ourselves often of the immeasurable and superior benefits of the word of God in our lives. We must put the evidence before us that reading, pondering, memorizing, and studying the Bible will yield more joy in this life and the next than all the things that lure us from it. Do you believe that? That being near God and his word yields more joy than all the things that distract us? He continues, the Bible leads us to superior and lasting joy because it leads us to Christ, especially to see his glory and enjoy his fellowship. 
So let's not forget that. The message of Titus 2, that's our lesson today, it's encouraging, it's motivating, it's convicting. And I get really excited to see God's design and his provision and what he intends to accomplish through our relationships with each other. But we need to start here and understand that God is our joy. And all that we're going to talk about in Titus today is an expression of that joy. It's the joy of our salvation. It's the joy of knowing God and being a recipient of his grace. So this small sheet of paper is cut to fit in your worship, in your, uh, worship book, your songbook. If you want to refer to it again, you can just add it to your songbook. All right, go ahead then and open up your Bible to Titus. Our lesson today is Women Encouraging Women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, contain instructions specifically for women in the church. All of Scripture is for our instruction. All of it is God's tool for our sanctification. But this is a unique passage in Scripture in that it connects the role that women play in one another's lives with the health of the church and the honor of God's word. Now, you can see our passage summary in your notes. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. And and we teach Titus 2, 3 through 5, early in the year, so that as we continue to be equipped and encouraged in the Wellspring disciplines throughout the year, we can think of each lesson not only in how it applies to our own lives, but also in how it can help us um, apply what we're going to see in Titus 2 as we care for one another. So in our homework, we did an overview of the letter, and we saw that Titus is a letter written by Paul to Titus, who is his son in the faith. Paul had ministered in Crete with Titus and had left Titus there to continue the work. Now in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The churches needed order, and they needed elders. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches at Crete. There were men who professed to know God, but by their deeds they denied him. And these men were exerting an influence. Verse 10 tells us that they were upsetting whole families. Households were being thrown into confusion. So Paul gave instructions that would bring order to both the churches and the households. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins with instructions for godly living. Let's read some of these verses, beginning in verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. Now that word's going to come up a lot in the book of Titus. Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. Now, notice who is going to train and encourage the young women in these verses. It's not Titus. This is really interesting. There is something about the instruction that the young women need that requires an older woman. The young women didn't just need words. Titus could have given them that. They needed an example that Titus, as a man, couldn't give them. They needed the example of a godly older woman. And those older women, through their words and through their example, 
were needed to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 5, to be sensible. There's that quality again. Pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Notice what the impact of godly character in the women will be. It will protect the honor of God's word. What a weighty call. And then he continues with instructions for young men, for Titus himself, and for slaves. And then we come to verse 11, and it begins with the word for. And that word for means because. What, uh, what comes next is giving us the reason for all those instructions we saw in verses 1 through 10. Why are we to live that way? How are we to live that way? Well, it's because in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Remember, we saw that the older women were not to be malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. That's the kind of ungodliness that grace instructs us to deny. And grace instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We saw that instruction to be sensible before, didn't we? A couple of times. Paul is saying that grace is what instructs us to be sensible and godly. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. This is the gospel. Who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Believer, that's what Jesus has done for us. And that is why it's important that we pay attention to the instructions for godliness in Titus 2. So here is what Paul is telling Titus to say to those in the churches. We have a problem here in Crete. Our churches aren't in order. So because of what Christ has done, you have a role here now to help your church. God wants to use us to make his church healthy, to make our households healthy. And God's grace has appeared, and it's in the process of changing us, and we have a responsibility to be the kind of women who do strengthen the church. I praise God that there are so many ways that the women of Grace Bible Church are living this out. But I also think that we can have a tendency to look at this passage and maybe come up with reasons why it doesn't apply to us. Maybe escape clauses. You know, maybe we think, I just really have never felt very comfortable around other women. Or, I really haven't been a believer very long. Or, this is just for married women. Maybe we think about the home we grew up in, that this wasn't the character model for us there. Or maybe we have doubts that somehow our past disqualifies us. Paul is not saying, just go clean up your act. He's saying, there's a problem in the church, so remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God's grace does, and now listen to what he has saved you for. And step in and fulfill the role God has given you to strengthen your church. 
If you lack confidence that this is what God has for you to do, here's what you need to know. Christ has saved you out of all that you were, and he's purified you to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And those deeds are what he produces in us through his grace. And your church needs you. Other women need you, and you need other women. So these instructions are deliberate. They're God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that we can encourage and teach one another, so that our households are protected, so that our church is strengthened, and so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's read chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 again, and look at the kind of women that God's grace enables us to be and that our church needs us to be. Verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Titus 2 describes for us the kind of women we need to be at a heart level. And it tells us we need to be involved in one another's lives. And it warns us that the honor of God's word is at stake. So we're at Roman numeral 1 on the outline. What older women transformed by the gospel must be. So let's start by what is meant by older women. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range. Commentators say that it could refer primarily to women whose children are grown. But older is a relative term. There was a time at Grace Bible Church when those approaching 30 were older. All you need to do to be older is to find someone who is younger. Exactly. All of us are older than somebody. Even if you have a believing daughter who's in junior high or high school, she has an opportunity to live this out so that the younger girls grow up seeing the impact that God's word has made in her life. Each season of life will bring us new perspectives that need to be shared with those who are younger than we are. Our church needs us to do that, to be transparent with one another, to share our struggles, to share how God is at work in our lives. And God's grace has the power to make us the kind of women who can encourage other women in this way. Now, practically speaking, I find it helpful as I study these verses to think of myself as both an older woman and a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as older women as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger. Sometimes they're younger in years, and sometimes they're younger in the Lord. And we can think of ourselves as younger women, looking for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. It means keeping a humble, teachable attitude so that their influence brings good fruit in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we are going to have a sign-up list in the back where everybody can just sign up to get an older woman. But it does mean that we look around and we ask, who's in my Wellspring discussion group? Who's in my small group, the groups that meet during the week in the evening? Or who do I serve with at Grace Bible Church? 
and we can look for ways to strengthen our church through those relationships. And I also want you to know that we have a mentoring ministry at Grace Bible Church. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship, an older and a younger woman together. And if that's you, either as an older woman or a younger woman, you can talk to Chris. That's one of her ministries, is to connect women who are looking for help in finding this kind of relationship. So let's talk about what the older woman is to be. The character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent. She's not in, sorry, she's not a malicious gossip. She's not enslaved to much wine. And she teaches what is good. They're a package. They go together. And together they make her the kind of woman who's qualified to encourage and train younger women. But notice what the list doesn't say. It has nothing to do with the kind of man she's married to. In fact, it doesn't even say she is married or that she has kids or that her kids are believers or that she has all the answers. It doesn't even talk about the kind of mother she had. This is a woman who has reverence for God. And that reverence is what qualifies her to encourage a younger woman. Reverence is what qualifies her. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest in a sacred place. Old Testament priests were set apart. They were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. Similarly, Paul is saying that older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. So how do we cultivate reverence? It doesn't just happen because we keep having birthdays. We have to be committed to drawing near to God in his word. It's discipline one. And a reverent woman is a doer of the word, not just a hearer, but one who is obedient and growing in her obedience. As the truths of the gospel saturate our hearts and take up residence there, we press on to grow in reverent love for God and to make every aspect of our lives a reflection of our worship of him. That is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible at a heart level. It's what grace calls us to be. Now, this first quality, reverence, may be functioning as an overarching quality, with these other three describing what that looks like. A reverent woman is not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Reverence and gossip... That just doesn't go together. Think how discouraging it would be to hear an older woman whom you respect gossiping, repeating things that ought not be repeated, slandering others. So number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. The Greek word for malicious gossip is diabolos, meaning devil. It's used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan, the one who accuses and slanders. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that. We must not be backbiting. We must not make slanderous charges against others. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this kind of ungodliness, to disassociate ourselves from it, to 
to not even listen to it. We are to be reverent women who restrain our tongues from participating in that which pushes others down in the eyes of others. I'm going to say that again. We are to be reverent women who restrain our tongues from participating in anything that pushes others down in the eyes of others. That is what gossip does. We must be so careful, always being on guard about what we're thinking because that overflows into what we're saying or posting or texting. We have to guard what we listen to, what we read. If any unwholesome speech is finding a place in our lives and we need to go before the Lord and repent. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, next on the outline, number three, is not enslaved to much wine. Nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places, Paul condemns drunkenness. Believers are exhorted not to be enslaved by much wine. The point is that self-control must remain completely intact in a believer's life. This is an issue of self-control. The emphasis in this verse is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in Crete because that's what Paul addressed here. But it could be anything where we're not using self-control. It could be TV or what we're watching on TV or how we eat, how we spend money. It could be how we use time on our phone or our computer or gaming or exercise or magazines. It could be anything that takes us away from our most important priorities. It's going back to doing all things for the glory of God, of being reverent. It can be healthy to do an assessment, to see if our focus really is on honoring God in these areas. Ask someone in your household, someone who knows you well, someone who will be really honest with you, if they see anything in your life that they think you might be enslaved to. Another great revealer is to write down everything you do for two weeks or everything you spend. We might find that we're allowing ourselves to be enslaved to something. It can just be very telling. Ask God to show you if there's any area of your life that's not honoring to him where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, it will affect our ministry with other women. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from gossip, away from enslavement, to find her joy, her comfort, her peace in Jesus. That is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. Well, finally, number four, Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of winsome goodness, of what is holy and godly. It's an ability to help younger women understand the things that would be beneficial to them. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from God's word. The word is where we find God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or experiences, although there are times that that can be helpful. 
But we need to be women who bring others to the word of God and then encourage them to be obedient to it. And it's interesting that this Greek word doesn't indicate that it's necessarily formal teaching. It includes our conversations and our example. We need to be involved in each other's lives so that we can learn from one another. So gospel-transformed older women must be reverent, not gossips, not enslaved, and teachers of what is good and beneficial. Now the point here is not to dwell on our shortcomings. We all have them, and where we have sinned, we need to confess and turn away from it. Remember 1 John 1, 9. But the point is to ask ourselves, are we planting ourselves in the Word of God and positioning, our, positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be so that we can help younger women? It's important to look at these verses and make sure we understand these qualities, but it's also important that we don't lose sight of what's going on in this passage. No matter how godly Titus was, he wasn't the right person to encourage and teach the young women in this way. The church needed, and the church still needs, godly older women to do this. Women who understand God's grace. Don't forget verse 11. Women who understand that God's grace saves us and it trains us. Women who understand that Christ redeemed us and who are living gospel-transformed lives. That kind of a woman can help other women grow in living gospel-transformed lives by both their words and their deeds. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline. What transformed older women must train the young women to be. Verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I've noticed that I don't always like other people training me. We have a tendency to not necessarily like that, especially maybe when it's women in our own household or our own family. But I really want to urge you and urge all of us to urge me to cultivate a humble, teachable heart. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. It's a sign of wisdom to receive instruction, to seek it out. But Proverbs 1.7 says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, being teachable isn't natural. In school or in the workplace, it is a weakness not to know something. But believers are disciples. That means that we are learners. So look for what you can learn from the godly women that God has placed in your life. Ask questions. Sometimes, through the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us lessons that we never would have gone looking for. All right. All right, let's go ahead and read verses 4 and 5 then. Older women are to be what we've seen so that they may encourage the young women to love their husband, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. 
we are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying, to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. Now, the first two, to love her husband and love her children, address the gospel influence that a married woman has in her closest relationships. Single women also need to understand and love these qualities so that they can encourage others. Moms, teach your daughters this. We need to be helping one another to think the best of our husbands. Don't let me bash my husband. Don't let me roll my eyes at something he says. Don't let me correct him in front of you. Help me to love my husband. We need to help each other with this. So let's look at what it means to love our husband. In the Greek, this is literally being a husband lover. It describes who a woman is. It's not just what she does. This is phileo love, the love of friendship. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, being friends with him. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most of the marriages on Crete were arranged marriages. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a gospel representative. And with all the suppression of truth and confusion going on in our culture about marriage, we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives by the way we treasure marriage and by the way we love our husbands. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It's something a woman grows into. It's learned as it's practiced. It is sadly all too easy for a critical spirit to creep into our attitude towards our husbands. And so we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in it. To have a loving, fond affection for our husband that's not based on his worthiness, but because it's what honors God. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband. And that is what we get to encourage one another to do. Each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means to get to know him and to study him and ask him how you can be most helpful to him. So how do we teach this? How do we learn this? Well, first of all, we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead. It is not first and most about what makes us happy. God wants to use our challenges and our struggles to draw us closer to him and to grow our character so that we reflect him in our marriages. When we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to his image. We will begin to look more like Christ as we give up selfishness and control. Secondly, we need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities. That means he's our priority before our children, before our activities, before ministry. Do you encourage women in that? 
You know, it's easy to say, but so much more difficult to actually live out consistently when there are so many things that call for our attention. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and we find ourselves expecting our husband to help us and forgetting that in Genesis 2, God created us to be a suitable helper for our husband. That doesn't mean that our husbands can't serve or that they don't serve, but we should have an attitude of thankfulness, not entitlement. And so we need to encourage one another to give our best to our husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33 says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse doesn't say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of a love for God. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that joyfully serves our husband, that finds joy in putting his needs above our own, that treats our husband like he really is our best friend, not comparing him to anybody else. This is the kind of love that young women need to be trained in. Well, that brings us to... Uh, encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we have many opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children all around us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the way that so many of you are children-loving women. And we're sure blessed with a lot of children-loving women over in Wellspring Kids, too, aren't we? That's just a good thing to even think about as we cultivate these qualities as you grow through Wellspring this year. Maybe next year you'll be one of those who's serving the children in Wellspring Kids. So this is phileo love. We are to cherish and enjoy our children. It's selfless and it's affectionate. And you would think that this love would come naturally. And most mothers do have a natural affection for their children. But that can be strained When it's one o'clock in the morning and you're exhausted, either because little ones are awake or because older ones aren't home yet. Most of you haven't gotten there yet, but just wait. Sometimes there are things you just really need to get done and your children need your attention. Remember, this was written in a day when they didn't have all our modern conveniences. It takes a great amount of work to shepherd children, to love them enough to be consistent with our training and our discipline, with meaningful conversations, especially as they get older. I thought it was going to take less time when they got older. We're still waiting for that to happen, aren't we, Julie? (laughs) Okay. Mothers can be easily discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence that God has given us with our children. In spite of our insecurities, in spite of our weaknesses, it can start to feel like a burden sometimes. But we need to remind each other that loving children is God's priority for us. It's second in the list after loving our husband. We need to view mothering not as an inconvenience, but as a privilege and a pleasure. God places a great value on that role, and so must we. 
You know, when we feel weighed down or our friends feel weighed down with the mundane task of caring for children, we get to remind one another that this work has eternal value. Women are providing an environment where children can learn the things of God. A mother's unselfish service to meet the needs of her children is a perfect way for them to see the selfless love of God put on display. Now, some stages are easier than others, but as we persevere in loving children, we again get to show such a contrast with the world. This kind of love demonstrates God's grace at work in our lives and in our church. Well, the next quality that older women are to teach to young women is being sensible or self-controlled. It's being prudent and thoughtful. It's having a sound mind being led by God's word rather than being controlled by emotion or impulse. What a blessing that this is something we can learn. So what are some emotions that we might be tempted to let control us? Fear, anger, sadness, self-pity, anxiety, desire, maybe, for things, for happiness, for admiration, appreciation. Emotions are not necessarily sinful, but they're horrible masters. They were never designed to rule us. But because God's grace has appeared, and remember verse 12, it has instructed us to live sensibly, we're not enslaved to these emotions. God enables us to have a sound mind so that those emotions are not ruling us. And as we cultivate this soundness of mind in our thoughts and in our feelings, we are so much better prepared to be prudent with how we live, how we manage our time and our money, our words our responsibilities, even our relationships. Now I'm going to read Proverbs 25, 28, and I want you to try to get a mental picture of it. It's describing an ancient city which was typically surrounded by a strong wall for protection. But there is a serious problem with this city. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Do you see the vulnerability, the danger? But self-control offers a protection from all kinds of sin and foolishness. It protects God's word from dishonor. So imagine that a younger woman comes to you and says, hey, can you teach me to be sensible? And if you're like me, you might have to think, well, I wish I were more sensible than I am, but I want to be sensible, and I want to grow in being sensible, and I want to put off those things that are hindering me from being sensible. And so we can honestly reply, let's grow together. Let's go to God's word. Let's apply the gospel. Let's pray and encourage one another. Maybe there's another woman who can help both of us. And let's praise God when by his grace, we do grow in our self-control. Well, that brings us then to pure. This word means to be morally pure, to live in a holy manner. 
It's a practical life of holiness and purity. It's a life of repentance. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a hard attitude with an inner longing to honor God in all we do. You can see an emphasis for women here. The older women are to be reverent so that they can teach the young women to be pure. They're different words, but it's the same idea. And there's a connection between being pure and sensible. Having a sound mind is necessary to live a pure life. When we are self-controlled and serious about our walk with God, it enables us to deny our own desires and the lusts of our flesh in order to follow God's ways. A young woman needs to follow, needs to learn Romans 13, 14, which says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Older women need to teach younger women to renew their minds with scripture. That's how she'll learn to be pure. You know, there are so many opportunities for impurity, for a lack of holiness. We have to guard against impure thoughts, words, against immodesty. We have to guard against impurity in what we watch and read. And we must fight for purity in how we think about men and how we relate to them. There are a lot of temptations. You probably know your own weaknesses where you are most easily tempted. But I want to plead with you to flee. Your household needs you to flee. Your church needs you to flee. Please flee so that God's word will not be dishonored. Let an older woman help you with 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Well, next we have worker at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. If we are not employed outside our home, we can't automatically conclude that we are workers at home. If we are employed outside the home, either single or married, we must not conclude that we can't be workers at home or that it's not our responsibility to be. This quality isn't optional for any woman in any season of life, just like being pure or being sensible. It describes who we are to be, not just what we do at certain times of our lives. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. It's important. Paul expresses concern about women who are not workers at home. In 2 Timothy 3, he describes homes with weak women who are weighed down with sin and led by their impulses. Those are women who are not pursuing purity and self-control. These weak women make their homes a target for evil men. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that there's a temptation for young widows not to work in their homes, but to be idle and to go from house to house and to gossip. And if they, they do, they are giving the adversary an opportunity to speak reproachfully. And the reason that Paul is concerned is because he understands the importance that God's word places on our homes. In the New Testament, 
Households are useful for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing believers, missionaries, and even those in prison. The home is important to God's work in the church. It's essential. And as women, we have a role as workers in the home. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. So what does the work of a household include? Well, the greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there and who visit there. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires. And it means learning diligence in managing the many tasks so that as much as it's up to us, our home is a place that reflects the gospel's work in our lives. Being a worker at home means finding joy in the many opportunities to serve others where we live. And that takes time. For the married women with children at home, it means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. So how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, if you think about the Proverbs 31 woman, she was busy buying fields and selling garments, thinking of people beyond her home, but it's clear that that wasn't contradictory to her being a worker in her home, at her home. She was still caring for the needs of her household, and anything she did outside of her household was for the benefit of those in her household. It wasn't for selfish gain, and that was evident to those who were in her household. Lydia is another example in Acts 16. She was a businesswoman. She was most likely single, and she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him and the church in her home. Ministering with her home was one of the first evidences of God's grace at work in her life when God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. Another example is Priscilla. Priscilla was married to a man named Aquila. We heard about him in church on Sunday, both of them. And Acts 18 says that she and her husband worked as tent makers. That was their vocation. She was also a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. And she and her husband hosted a church in their home. It appears that her work and her ministry were not a hindrance to her role as a worker in her home because she and her husband were able to make their home available to the church. So there are circumstances when a woman does work outside the home. If a woman is single living away from her parents or her husband is disabled or she's a single mom. If you're married, especially with children, it's a weighty decision to work outside the home and it needs to be made carefully with your husband as together you evaluate if it's the best thing for your marriage and if it's the best thing for your family in your particular season. Or a woman may need to work outside the home to submit to her husband. But in any of these circumstances, there needs to be a clear way for any woman to be a worker at home. If you do work outside the home, here's what you need to understand, or here's what you need to do. 
Be a homeworking woman. Remember, that's a description of the kind of person you are and the priority you place on the home. And also, do your work outside the home. And do it without guilt. Do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. You have Colossians 3.23 in your notes. And it is difficult. There may be a lot of good things that you have to say no to. But you can trust your Savior. If this is what he has for you, then his grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to bring him glory and for him to make you more like Christ. Either way, whether you are working outside your home or you do your job from home or your job is your home, we are called to be homeworking women. So shepherd your heart. Don't be weighed down by sin and led by impulses. Don't be idle and easily distracted by all the things that can take our focus and our attention away from this important work, and especially from the important people in our homes. But rather protect the honor of God's word by esteeming and prioritizing the work of the home, and be faithful to joyfully nurture and serve the people in your home. If that is a struggle for you, I really want to encourage you, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for the work of your home. If you're married and you have any concerns at all about how this plays out in your home, I really want to encourage you to ask your husband to listen with you to the link that's in your notes. It's a build message where Scott is shepherding the men about leading their wives and being Titus two women. It could really help you and your husband to have unity in your understanding of God's call for you to be a home-working woman. Well, that brings us to kind. Now, this word kind is more often translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or a goodness that comes from the heart, and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. We're right back at discipline one again. The way our heart gets filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. Do you see once again that we never graduate from discipline one? This kind of good treasure from God's word in our hearts will produce kindness in what we do, like what we do as homeworking women. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home in Titus 2. Often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those closest relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless with kindness. We might start keeping track in our minds of who has served more. Or we might think it's not important to be careful with our tone of voice or our facial expressions, to be certain that they express kindness and give grace along with our words and our actions. But since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives and it flows from our hearts, then it cannot be something that's based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It is not a reaction to those around us, but rather it's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men like me. God's grace in the gospel makes us more and more like the God who saved us. It enables us to be kind, especially when it's not deserved. And God uses us in one another's lives to teach us kindness. Well, that brings us then to being subject to our to their own husband, number seven. So how do you view submission? That's what the word subject means. Do you find it appealing? Or does it make you cringe maybe just a little bit? You know, most of us don't start out loving the idea of submission. You know, before Christ, all we wanted was self-rule. Now, as those who have been regenerated through the gospel, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God places us under authority at many different levels, and always for our good. So we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Again, submission is relevant whether we are single or married. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage our married friends. Like I said before, I need you to help me. Don't let me entertain a heart of rebellion towards my husband's God's given role in my life. Don't let me think I'm always right. Understanding submission prepares us for marriage if that's in our future. And no matter what our season of life, there are institutions of authority to which we must submit. In our family, in our job, our church, our school, and our government. And the heart struggle that we have with that authority very often boils down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen people that he has placed over us. So understanding submission will help us deal with that struggle as well. All right, so subject in the Greek is hupotasso, and it means to voluntarily place oneself under. That's important to know. We are placing ourselves under. It's not our husband's responsibility to make us submit, although he has the freedom to remind us and help us when we're struggling. But the command is for us to do this voluntarily. We're lining ourselves up under his leadership. Now, submission did not begin with the New Testament. It didn't begin when sin entered the world, and submission didn't even begin at creation, when God created the woman to be the suitable helper for man. Submission goes back even before that, because submission is represented in the very character of God. Look at the quote in your outline from Wayne Grudem. It reads, The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It's a privilege. It's something good and desirable. 
It's the virtue that's been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son as he relates to the Father. To further display this glory, God instituted a husband's leadership and a wife's submission at the beginning of creation, before sin ever entered the world. Ephesians 5 reveals God's ultimate intention for headship and submission in marriage. It's to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. What an opportunity we have to help the world understand how biblical marriage points to the gospel. So God determined that we are to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband's authority. God designed submission for his glory. So if submission is such a good thing, why can it be so hard? Well, we could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think that we are right. That's why we can't forget what we learned in those lessons we had on the heart. And we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband or against anyone else in authority. It's a battle with the sin in our own hearts. That is our biggest adversary. Even when it feels like our adversary is our husband, we need to remember Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The Lord is the one to whom we are entrusting ourselves when we submit. That's where our focus needs to be, not on our husband's worthiness, but on the Lord's trustworthiness. He is the one we are trusting when we submit. So we saw that submission means to voluntarily place oneself under. It is done willingly without being contentious. Now, contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. There is no demonstration of the Father's relationship with the Son in that, or of Jesus' relationship with the church. Proverbs 19.13 says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. It's just an ongoing irritation. So we need to agree as often as we can. It doesn't mean that we never speak up or share our opinion, particularly about major decisions, but we do need to speak in appropriate, helpful ways. We shouldn't make it a habit to think that every decision our husband makes has to be discussed with us. Just because he doesn't do something the way we would doesn't make his way wrong. In Genesis 2, God made Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate. Am I being helpful? Or am I being wearisome, contentious? What would my husband say? It's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. If we see a sinful pattern in our husband that's detrimental to our family, but our husband doesn't agree, we need to make a gracious appeal We need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder in our church or from a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, always that has to be done 
with prayer. After examining ourselves with the log in our own eye, before we try to help our husband with the speck in his, it must be done with the utmost respect and humility. So let's finish this virtue by looking at 1 Peter 3. In verse 1, it says, in the same way, he's looking back to Christ's example on the cross, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what is the instruction even for this kind of a husband? Be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. And that's why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. We need to understand that there is protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all young women understand this principle. It's so contrary to the world's messages. Older women need to understand and then help younger women understand that this puts God's character on display. It strengthens families, it strengthens churches, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. We need to spur one another on in that. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? So why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Well, it's because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. The world needs to see that we belong to Christ. It needs to see his image lived out in us. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, we've talked about that, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be just like the world around us, but God saved us. And how will the world see that? By us living out Titus 2. Now, you might be thinking, There's no way I can help a younger woman in some of these areas because I have so much room to grow myself. But don't forget, we are all in a mixed condition. We are going to struggle, and God is going to bring the growth as we persevere and encourage one another. John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, said that he was unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. John the Baptist! But he still did what God gave him to do. In Ephesians 3, Paul said that to him, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So why did this self-proclaimed least of all saints preach the gospel? It was God's grace to him, and it's God's 
grace to us, remember Titus 2.11, it's God's grace to us to be part of one another's lives as reverent older women encouraging younger women and as teachable younger women receiving encouragement and training from older women. What a privilege. Because when this is what we do, the world can see the truth and the power of the gospel being lived out through us. That is what protects the honor of God's word, and that is what gives glory to God. I want to pray, and then I want to give you just one practical suggestion for how you might want to cultivate these qualities. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your design. Lord, your, your design is a good design. Thank you so much that your salvation of us is not something that ended in the past. Lord, it's something that you have been purposing from eternity past, and you are continuing to work out in us. Um, Lord, thank you that you are always at work for our good and for your glory. Lord, I do pray that, um, Lord, there's a lot here. Lord, we have busy lives. I pray that you would help each one of us to remember that nugget that you want us to remember, Lord. That one, that one truth, that one quality, that one relationship, Lord, where you in particular want us to take that next step of growth as Titus two women. I pray that you would help us in our discussion groups to love one another well as we share what you've been teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the one last suggestion um, for cultivating an awareness of these verses. Um, Scott Maxwell does this with the men in build, with the deacon qualifications. He encourages them to either every day, every couple of days, maybe once a week, to focus on just one thing from these verses and review what it means and then thank God for his grace to where that quality is present in you or how you're growing in that quality, and then pray about ways in which you still need to grow in that quality. Um, And then finally, also think and pray about how you could encourage other women to grow in that way. And then whatever your time frame is, whether it's the next day or the next week, move on to the next quality in these verses and do the same thing. That's just one suggestion to help keep these qualities in front of us. Because I know that in order to grow, I need to be praying and thinking about these on an ongoing basis. We don't want this just to be something we hear once a year in Wellspring. Well, here we are back to Titus 2 again. And maybe we feel a little conviction, but we don't follow up and actually grow in this. So that's just one suggestion that might help you to keep praying through these. All right. Anything else, Chris? All right, we're dismissed to discussion groups. Thank you for having me.